sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time of Lawrence Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. How's it? How are we doing, folks? Welcome back. It's Andrew Needling, and I'll be your host. This is Moving the Needle podcast. Hey, if you're new to the show, thanks so much for downing this one. I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome, podcast fans. I've got an exciting one lined up. Good mate of mine, and he's doing his own podcast. Uh, you see him doing all sorts of content from the races when he's not actually racing himself. He's a EWS winner. He spent quite a lot of time as a privateer, so I do want to pick his brain about that, but he's on a factory ride with GT. Win Masters, how are we doing? And thanks for coming on. Uh, we're doing good, Needles. Um, ha- had a flat-out morning, and uh, we've made it happen. It's It's been a while in the works, this one, so it's good, good to be on and uh, get on your show. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we've definitely been sharing some texts and some articles, and and I'm glad that we finally got it going. We did talk about it basically since we both launched the podcast. I think we said we've we've got to go on each other's shows and kind of talk some racing, talk some shit. And you've obviously been a big proponent of helping privateers. And uh, for the listener that maybe doesn't know your full history, I was there watching you come through the ranks, and and you actually had definitely a more challenging route than some of these maybe current juniors that go straight onto a factory ride. So we definitely want to jump into that. But I don't know if all the listeners know that your competitive uh, career started not on a bicycle, but on a horse. Yeah, actually, uh, myself and my brother, Ed, um, my mum just dragged us out to ride horses. And uh, we were doing that full time until we were like 11 or 12. And then it was like the horse had to go. So... uh, my horse got sold and I got a new bike, I think. But what is competitive, like, horse, are you doing the those kind of, um, I don't know what it's even called, when you do over the kind of jumps and things like that, yeah. are you doing dressage where you had to prance around all fancy, what were you doing? We had to do a bit of everything, actually, but um, we preferred the jumps, um, yeah, the, go sh- figure. the show jumping, or the cross country, yeah, that was, like, a bit more exciting, but... Um, the dressage was not quite our thing. We we're not really that good at that. It's like quite slow. Yeah, looking at how you've yeah. grown your hair, I don't think you're always, well, I mean, I, I know you tied it up for your wedding, but you're not always as well put as a dressage champion. Who was the better horse rider, you or Eddie? Who's got that uh, mm. over the other guy? Well, I was probably doing bigger jumps because I had a bigger horse. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at the time, at the time, I reckon I was better, but only because my horse was bigger. So Eddie's going to blame his equipment for getting smoked yeah. by you at horse, horse show jumping. You, you've got to blame the equipment sometimes, eh? Oh, well, you know, whatever keeps your confidence up, even as a young horse rider, I guess. Yeah, but it, it was still always, a, we're always competing against each other and it's it's still the same now. So like, it's quite cool. And so it hasn't stopped. Do you guys still share a bit of banter if you smoke him at a race or he smokes you? Yeah, it, it was super competitive up until probably like 2017 18 and then he's been on a roll from there but um it took him a while to find his feet in the uh world cup or world enduro racing so oh it was a good lot of banter until there and now it's like he's he's normally got one on me but um i still try and get him some days you ever put any wages on it uh we haven't actually put money on it but 
But there was like one season where we were like going back and forward every race, like super close. What about like a little friendly wage and the losers to put it into the privateer fund me page that, that we will get into <laughs> later on? Well, we'll probably put into it anyway. So, so the, the wager would be good, but we need to make it even better than that. I reckon. Yeah, but you know, like loser of the race has to put an extra whatever, 100 yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, up the stakes. Yeah. yeah. It'll be more no, than what you cool. earn in prize money you'd be putting into the privateer fund. <laughs> or or pay it to like someone deserving. Yeah. Like, I had, I have an idea for the, this year's, I still haven't, I'm like quite slow. I have more ideas than uh, I actually put things together. That's why my podcast is not as uh, consistent as yours. But um, I want to make a, like a, a an award for the sixty first or like the first privateer that doesn't qualify. So at a at, at a one. World Cup round per round, yeah. the yep. poor guy that gets sixty first. Yeah, if if he's privateer, if he's pro, he doesn't get it. But if he's a privateer, he gets like the sixty one award. <laughs> if he's a pro, he gets fined for getting sixty first, and he has to give it to the privateer. <laughs> Probably fired by his team, yeah. Yeah, you should. And then the money should go to... I like where this is going. Hey, ideas are good. Uh, I've, I've got less ideas from you, so I think it's... I don't, don't be too hard on yourself. You did implement um, this privateer fund and you've always got ideas to... Is that probably because of maybe your road to landing on a factory team and maybe catch the listeners up? Um, you spent quite a few years after being successful in New Zealand to working and funding your own races and going to Europe for, I mean, it was three or four years at least, right? Yeah, I think um, as a junior, it was like me and Sam Blinkertop. Um, we were battling all the time. Um, then then when he went to Europe, he went pretty young. I think he would have been 15 or 16, and I didn't go. So I think I kind of missed a bit there by not going. But um, then I just had to go to work, and in the end, I like did like probably a year or two in New Zealand where I was just wasn't getting anywhere, like kind of working a laboring job and just living like the uh, residential drifting lifestyle. <laughs> I was into like crappy cars and spending my money on that and then still riding, but not, not as much. And then, um, then I'm like after the world champs in 2006 in Rotorua, I just like, made the decision I gotta like do something so I moved to Australia because I couldn't make enough money in New Zealand doing those jobs but in Australia you got paid a lot more and pretty much just flew over there from one day to the next and then started work the next day in the middle of nowhere on this farm and it went from there and then I got to know I already I think I already knew Mick and Tracy but then their family helped me quite a bit and got me bikes to use and stuff and I think I had like an old bike of one of Mick's friends or something and one of Mick's old helmets. And then I was just doing some local races in Cairns. And moving over there was to make some sort of career and earn more money or with the hopes of earning enough money to support yourself to go to Europe? Like, was that dream still alive in you and still festering to, to go try it in Europe? Yeah, that was like the whole thing was that I could save enough money there and then go and race in Europe. So I think, I think that first, I think I did like maybe a year and a half before I had enough money. 
and it wasn't a crazy amount of money either. Maybe it was probably 15000 all up, uh, Australian or New Zealand dollars. And then after, I think after my – I spent probably 12000 on that first season going when I went over. So I think I bought like a second-hand iron horse, but it was like some guy that didn't ride much. So I had like a the iron horse, the green iron horse Sunday, which was like – the trick bike then i was like i'm gonna get that bike sam hill's got that bike i'm getting that That's and i amazing. still had flat yeah <laughs> so i was like and and i got it like it's real good condition for like a second hand one i was stoked but um i cracked the frame pretty early on so i had like a crack on my head tube but like they actually sent out a frame to me in andorra but it got lost <laughs> so so and I was lucky enough to get like a warranty frame with a second-hand bike as well, but but it got lost, so I never got it. And I was stoked. I was so stoked that I was going to get a new frame because it was like the black one then, like like the team one. Yeah. But I didn't get it, and then it, it, I never got it, and don't know where it ended up. But um. So, so you I were racing a season. cracked frame the whole season. Yeah, it was like cracked on the top of the head tube. I was going to ask some of the crazy stuff you got up to as, as a privateer, but that's clearly one of them, just stubbornly riding a, a cracked frame because it was no other option. It, it's fascinating. Eh? It kind of makes you appreciate it now probably or, or watching some of these young kids maybe not appreciate what they've got. You know, Some of them come through the junior ranks with mechanics and they don't really go through this hard yards of, of funding it yourself and really like putting everything you own and believe into a racing career yeah it's like hard sometimes when you see they they think they need more but really you just got to go and do it yourself and like um or they don't appreciate how good it, they've really got it like they've got all these people helping them the best bike it's like <laughs> just just enjoy what you're doing and um make the most of what you've got rather than think you need more like there's guys doing it with nothing. So if, if you're not going to um, appreciate what you've got when you've got like a team behind you and everything, then it's, it's easy to fall into that probably as a young guy, but still like you really have to appreciate what, what you do have over others that don't have, you know? Yeah, man. And then, so you're coming up to the ranks and, and you spent a few years going home, doing jobs. I know you were trailbuilding to, to fund these race seasons and, and that fire in you was just what, what kept you motivated going through all those sort of privateer years of, you know, kind of getting results, but not enough to get, get funding. You know, what kept you going to get to where you now are on a factory ride? Um, well, it was like, I still, that first year I did on the iron horse, um, that was probably like by far the hardest and it could, it couldn't get worse than that. Like, what was for, the hardest, me, anyway. like sleeping in the van or just not having money or to just, feed yourself? Or just wherever, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we'd sleep wherever. And I like I flew to Europe. I knew one person, but I didn't really know him. Mike Skinner. Do you know Mike Skinner? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. He's a Kiwi racer. Yeah, no, of him, definitely. Yeah. So he knew this one guy in Portugal. And there was like, they used to start like the international racing season in Portugal with the Gouveia Maxis Cup. And I knew that that's like important to, to start like that and try and do as many races as I could. So I like, 
I think I had like the best approach I could have for the time, but like to just do what, as many ignorance is bliss. Yeah, so I just flew over there. <laughs> Didn't I? There's this one guy, Bruno, that Mike Skinner knew just from being in Warsi. So I, I had like contact with this guy, Bruno, and he picked me up from the airport. I stayed at his little apartment, I think, even with his mum, like his family apartment, I think, in Lisbon somewhere. And then just went to the race with him and his friends. And they all speak Portuguese, hardly any English. And I was like, well, I have to meet people at the race. Otherwise, I can't get to the next race. So I like, just talk to everyone, you know? Like, otherwise, I'm not going to get to the next race. That's amazing. I, I, yeah. I share some of those, those stories and, and issues as well. I don't think I had it half as hard as you. I had a few more contacts, luckily, before I went over. But... I know that feeling, looking around the pits, who's taking my bike? Yeah. <laughs> and, and where where am I going to go? It's not probably not going to be the same vehicle. But in a way, that's the best way because suddenly you know everyone in the pits or they know of you, for good or bad. Like They might be like, that guy's an idiot. He's got no plan. But then some of them will be like, well, they'll feel bad for you and they'll help you out or, and then you just talk to everyone. So suddenly, you know, everyone already within one season, I knew nearly everyone. Cause I just had to, I had to get to know everyone. Did you ever, is there ever a race where you literally, you, you didn't have a lift and you woke up the Monday morning and you were like, no idea how I'm getting, to, I don't know where to go and I don't know how to get to the next venue. Mostly it really fell into place. Like, I there was a guy Alex Evans, an English guy, and he helped me quite a lot because I from Gouveia I met him there, and then he I went to like a Portuguese race, then we went to a Spanish race, and then to a French race, all like back to back weekends, which was so sick because we'd just go somewhere and ride, and I think he had a tent and a van, so he'd sleep in the tent and I'd sleep in the van, but um. He had like an old airbed that had like a leak in it, so I'd just sleep on that. And it, 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 like you'd go to sleep with it up and wake up in the middle of the night on the floor. <laughs> and that <laughs> was like, but I got real lucky with him because he took me all the way to Morzine. And then I met Marshy, who's like pretty much, I'd say, the godfather of Kiwi downhill racing, like in Europe. He yeah, looking helps. after you guys. Yeah. Yeah. He helps all the Kiwis. Like every Kiwi would have a story to tell about when Marshy did something for them. And it's like that that alone, like he just helped so much, even though it was small things maybe for him to do at the time, he didn't have to do that and it just made such a difference. Yeah, the MTB community is amazing and the privateers um as well like i i think it's so cool how everyone kind of pulls together see someone needs some help and for the listeners listening in marshy is was went on to be greg's mechanic and and other top top riders so he did a lot in the sport still does a lot in the sport obviously invented the marsh guard all sorts of things so he's got a real mind on him but it's cool to see and he would even help while he was on these pro teams on the side you know he he had made it in the, in the industry. So that's really cool to hear. And yeah, it makes perfect sense that you've got a passion and all these ideas to maybe help the next generation. And I think that's, if I understand, I also want to try, pass on this knowledge. 
i.e. through the podcast mm. or, or listening to you, your story and going, shit, he had it harder than me and I claim to have it hard and, no. I, laugh, and I laugh at the youngsters going, oh, you've already got a mechanic. I used to work on my own bike, you know, and it's, I think it's awesome that you're willing to share those stories because people should take inspiration if you have a dream. You know, just yeah. go go and do it. Wing it. Wing it if you have to till you figure it out. Like you, you you knew one guy. You How uncomfortable must that be? I mean, it's exciting, <laughs> but pretty daunting to get off the plane and go, I literally know no one. But I guess the passion yeah, of racing bikes and the new courses, the excitement overweighs the, the dreaded uncomfortable of like, I don't know, I'm getting to the next race. Yeah, when you get off the plane the first time, you're just hoping that guy's there. Yeah, yeah, hundred, percent. Rough. Yeah. yeah, I landed in America. Luckily, I was gonna get Sven and Anka were gonna meet me, so I had met them yeah. and knew them a little bit from South Africa. But they were still building bikes and were late. And I was sitting at um, Los Angeles Airport and using those pay phones. There was no internet and WhatsApp and direct <laughs> yeah. communication. And I just come off like two huge flights, so jet lagged. Nineteen years old. I literally was. Yeah, I, I didn't know if they were coming. I had to wait there for hours. <laughs> and then I still had to drive like a bunch of hours to see all the classics. So, yeah, it's bringing up all these amazing memories. Plus, I didn't have all my bikes built. I was getting half of them there, didn't know anyone. <laughs> I was certain and I met Monk. So, um, yeah, it brings back good memories, but it makes you appreciate it um, when, you, when you get that factory ride. What was that like when you see that first contract with the salary. Did you, did you look, did you scroll down? I know I did. I kind of scrolled down to the salary part of the contract first <laughs> before leading all the bullshit because yeah. it was my first contract. Yeah. Well, I think, or oh, the probably I like the first real professional contract would have been with bulls bikes, which was oh, true. Like, yeah. Yeah. That year, just before you land on GT. Yeah. yeah fair enough. What, what Boris put together. Um, yeah. it was pretty much because of Boris. So it was, I think it was going to be, it was out of me and Mitch Delfs. And I think Mitch Delfs just decided to go, I don't know what, what he rode for, but he, he would have been, if he still rode in 2013, I'm not sure, but he was maybe with Rennie on the, that Moorwood thing, but they were going down. And, um, I think he chose that over the bull thing and the, the bull thing then fell into my lap and I'd been injured the year before and pretty much the year before for two years. So Boris kind of like just put me into that. And then I was like, got this, suddenly I've got like a professional ride. And the two years before was so shit. Like it's the worst time of my career so far. I, um, I, the two years before that I was on MS Mon, uh, MS Evil. And then I, I, um, broke my arm in the preseason, but I was like really strong in the preseason cause I've been doing this trail building in Chile. And I think I was working six days a week. They wouldn't let us work seven, but we'd ride like two hours up this climb every day to get to work and then work. Like, I think we're doing nine hour days or 10 hour days. So we'd ride this climb and then just work all day. And then, then you do this massive downhill to get home. And I do that six days a week. So I was like so strong when I came to like the preseason New Zealand races. Like I think I qualified first at the first national, crashed and still got fourth. And then the, the second one maybe got, I was like third, I think. And then, and then like New Zealand racing is stacked. It's like Blinky, Brooke, like all the guys. 
Oh yeah, um, New Zealand nationals <laughs> like a UK national as well. Yeah, yeah it's so hard. Um, and then I just had this crash over the bars in this rock garden in Nelson, where Sven lives now. And um, my arm like landed on top of a rock like that, and it just snapped it in half like both the bones. But I kept because I was going it's pretty steep. I just kept going over and over, so that the bones came out on 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 my radius. I think came out. When you say out, like went, out the skin. Yeah, went no. in the ground. Oh. Yeah, but but because I'm just going like that. I knew I knew as soon as I was crashing that it's this is bad. Like you know when you have a big one, it's it's you're waiting for it to come and it's just oh. the worst feeling. So I was like, I came into the steep bit and I hooked something on the top, like jumping in, and then I rolled the front wheel down the chute over the bars and it like slammed my arm on the rock. And then I kept going like with the slope. And when I finally stopped, like my arm had gone, the bone had gone out and then into the ground, like the dirt, and then back in my arm because I'd gone like that. So it was like a worst case. It was was like a worst case for that sort of break because normally the bone would come out, but it'd still be clean. So it got normally, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't, I touch wood, wouldn't have. Uh, it got all the experience. dirt and got all the dirt in, in on the bone and then they like cleaned it but like obviously probably not enough so i was like i got all the plates put on and everything got out of the hospital i was in the hospital for two or three days and then they let me out <clears throat> i got like i was staying at my friend's place on the couch so i was like on the couch and then i just felt like i was just gonna pass out like I had no energy or anything. I was just like, uh, and then I just said, you, know, you got to take me back to the hospital. They like open it up and they're like, no, you're going straight back into surgery now. Cause the, the bone was infected or like yeah, the whole it must have wound. Been a full infection for sure. huh? Yeah. And then they took the, like, I was just, I had nothing. I could hardly even stand up. They took all the plates off and did it all again and cleaned all, all the bones. So it would have like, in theory, it would delay the healing by a lot. Um, but then, like, fast forward 11 weeks, the surgeon's like, oh, it actually looks like it's healed pretty well. You'll be fine. Just go back to Europe and go racing. I was like, sweet, I'm going racing then. He said, it's all right. And then I was like, I'd be emailing him from Europe. I was like, yeah, it's it's pretty painful. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, oh, it will be. So I was like, okay. He said he said it will be. So I was doing. The, I did actually three or four races. Like I did um some European Cup, like IXS Cups, with the MS Evil team. I think it was me, Brooke, uh, Luke Strobel, and Marcus Peckel. And um, so we travel around in that bus. So I was like, this was like sick because I've like I'm on this team, and. I was like on a pretty small deal for that. Like it was hardly a um, professional deal. It was more like a, we'll give you a chance and see if you, what you can do. Yeah. Um, sort of a deal. And then, so I did those races and then I was at Fort William for the first world cup I was doing in my race run. So I'd like made the final all good in my race run, just hit a hole and like braced hard on the, on the bars and my arm just bent. 
<laughs> like the the plates just bent. No so way, so like, it wasn't healed I, at all. Not enough, no. And then I just kept going because I was like, well, I felt it go. like So I felt like a big lump in my arm. Oh just my kept goodness. going to, to the bottom of the run, I think, like finished, what, 50th or whatever. And then then uh, after that, I went and got an x-ray and then like my arm is like that. Like it just has this big lump in it. And there's there's a couple of pictures I can find somewhere where you can see how gnarly it is. And I didn't really want to believe it because it was like my the first chance that I had to be in like this professional team and it's all Yeah. Everything was riding on that that I'd done to get to that point. It's like you're doing almost like an apprenticeship get to the job and then they fire you sort of thing. Yeah, now you've got an injury that's out of your control here and you can't yeah. perform. Yeah, that's that must have been super tough mentally to deal with, yeah. Yeah, it was just I I was just trying to block it out and not believe it. So I went to Leo again like and just try to race anyway with a bent arm. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's such a like, kiwi thing to do, eh? Yeah. It was such a like I couldn't ride properly. Like every drop was painful, but I could still kind of ride because like my arm's broken, but it's still braced by these plates. But they're bent. So like, <laughs> sounds like the smart smartest thing you've done, yeah. But like, well, at that point, like it's like they're gonna have to fix it anyway. So I was like, I'll just try, and I still qualified at Leo game. But I remember every drop, I was like gritting my teeth. Because it was just hurting. <laughs> and then I think you got 60F in the race. And then after that, I'm like, I've got to go home and get this sorted. So um, me and Brooke went on this big party in Innsbruck. And then the next day I flew home. <laughs> Shame, man. Yeah, you've really yeah. kind of seen it, seen and done it all. It's awesome hearing it. But now, so that's some of the low low points, you know, getting some help and, and trying to prove yourself on a factory ride. What is it like um, getting getting a ride with proper support and a salary now? Let's kind of move to the present time, like what that's like, and then maybe the emotions of, of winning an EWS, like, you know, the biggest race mm. in the world for Enduro, and, and you were able to stand on the top step. Um, well, to go to the – the first professional team would have been Bulls, and that was like – I couldn't believe it almost that I'm getting put onto like this team after the two years – because rewind it a little bit, I'm dragging on a bit, but um, the when when my arm finally healed, like I was back riding good, and I actually we were trail building in Nelson, um, New Zealand, where Sven lived, and I snuck him in, like it was super not allowed to to show him the trails, like because it's like private land, private property for this like overseas investor, and um. The one time I took him, like I think it was even the first run that I took him up there, my handlebar snapped and then I broke my wrist. So I missed another whole season. Um, so that was two years that I missed before getting that ride with Bulls. So I almost couldn't believe it that someone would have signed me up when I didn't really race for those two years. But I think um, around that time was when I started doing like the interview videos and stuff. And I think that's like probably what kept me relevant to get me that ride. Like I was, I shared my own camera and I was with like a friend and we just make the videos. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, that's how that started, pretty, just just yeah. for fun on the side. Yeah, I already started, like, I don't know why, but I started doing videos when I was, like, 2008, 2009. Like, as soon as I got back from that first season, the first thing I did in Australia was buy a laptop so that I could do videos. And then I got, like, some crappy dad cam. And I just filmed videos. Like, I did my first video, which is still on Vimeo, of, like, this is Taranaki, where I live at home on an Ancelotti bike in 2009. So, like, I think that already started to, like, become a thing, and I'm lucky that I realized that video could be valuable before it really was. Yeah, so was so it just... I, did you have a conscious thought of, of trying to stay relevant, or I'm hearing you just kind of like to do videos and then realize, oh, it's pretty fun, and, and then yeah. now you realize yeah, the well, sponsors actually like it? I think at that at that time when I lived in Australia, I would just ride like with BMX guys and skate parks and stuff um, because that was the only thing I could do after work. Like I'd work super late and then the skate park would have lights on until 10.30, I think. So I'd just go to the skate park. If, if I had time, then I'd go there every day if I could and ride with a few guys and they would do like video stuff with that. So I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I should do videos and then it started from that really so i was like didn't realize that it would be valuable but i wanted to make videos to show what i do mm, mm. no it's clearly paid off like with the wind tv things and and doing these other things like the wheelie wednesday but before you know what i'm gonna pause it there because yeah i do want to get to your accolades and stuff but are you allowed to talk about or what can you share about because this trail building you did was one of the key components to you making it overseas and funding it and the little I know, and I'm not sure what you're allowed to talk about, but it's a private, very wealthy guy that mm. acquired land around the world and then had sets of trail builders building him private, basically a private bike park. And I rode the one in near Nelson through Sven's Connections, mm. and we did a video there. And yep. it is incredible. And to give the listeners some context, I mean, this mountain... It's pretty horrendous to build on uh, the one in New mm. Zealand. I don't know where you were. You know, there's some in Chile and yep. all around the world. And I mean, what sort of, for the top of your head, we're talking hundreds and thousands of dollars per bike park that he would just fund. I think millions of dollars, yeah. Millions of dollars I, per bike park. Yeah. And I heard he would like have bikes there, like two, two of what he wanted. And he would like helicopter in like and ride yeah, it like even, one day a year, maybe. Even like five santa cruz nomads with like all with like 10 or 12 stem spaces super high handlebars and he'd ride like sitting down really <laughs> did you, like, so did you meet this guy i wouldn't call it meet him because it's like um we were like just the workers and you just ride past and kind of like awkward wave or like acknowledge us <laughs> yeah but he would come only one or two days in the year to one at each site so you're lucky if you even saw him. That's insane. Hundreds of thousands of dollars per bike park. And some of them were in some incredible regions that were like remote and, and, and you'd, they'd build like, yeah. you know, warehouses and, uh, you know, kind of digs for you guys to stay over. I mean, it's a proper organization, but it's his private, private bike park. Yeah. yeah. The, the Chile, Chile one was probably like the most amazing one. And I want to go back and like film a video there because it's like, it's unreal. It's like, 
where you, where you live is in in the middle of this peninsula and on the lake, and like you have to cross the lake by boat to get to there. Then you're just there. You were, I think I stayed there for three months, and I went away from there once in three months for like a one night stay in the town nearest town, which is like hour or hour and a half. And there's like nothing in that town, but it's like so isolated, but so amazing. Like the lake with the big mountains, snow on the top. And you're just like trails coming down these hillsides. It's yeah. Like unreal. Yeah. No, it's nuts. Uh, I'll, I'll, I probably will forget. I keep saying, but I'll try link to it in the description. But uh, if you Google, I did a chasing trail. So Scott chasing trail with Brendan in New Zealand maybe 2017 and and some of that video has the bike park in new zealand so definitely look it up um yeah. it's yeah it's actually insane so yeah i guess you got to thank him for funding some of your racing and i and i think they paid well as they should because you were being mm. you know doing six day weeks nine hours and that was your pre-season training some of these years because i was going to ask like you're known as a very fit guy hard working so has it kind of just always been in your nature to to ride and, and, and train hard? Because yeah. you definitely are one of the fittest guys on the EWS and downhill circuit. Yeah, I don't. I think sometimes it's detrimental. I just enjoy riding too much. Like, um, I probably do too much rather than too less. So okay, like, okay. I remember like uh, even when I was at like high school, I had a crappy road bike and like. I'd get all like all these um, classes off because I was like sports or high performance sport, and I like chose less classes as, as possible. And I'd like at the sporting school. I heard you were bunking I, class. Now you're saying that you were allowed to ride. Uh, didn't you bunk the class uh, as well? A cup, a couple of classes I was allowed, but then the others, you, you know, you just get a sneak off. And um, <laughs> Blinky would normally, Blinky would always be up for the skate parks. But I would I would go with even like the local road riders, like young young guys similar age doing road riding, and I'd just do I'd race sometimes the road, then I'd like go back to the school, and then go to the skate park all day for the afternoon, and then like <laughs> then back to school for dinner. So you don't like to like, sit still, clearly. Like you've almost got a bit of ADD or something. I don't know. Like if I even like yesterday, like it's just been raining so much here in the uk for may the the weather's been really bad and i can't handle not doing something for a day like i like to have a day off one day off per week but other than that i don't like to have a day where i just don't do any exercise so i'd like even just get in the garage and do a zwift race just because like you feel better for doing it so i've kind of always had that and i would like i remember i would do like 80 kilometer or 100 kilometer road ride and then go back to the school, get my hardtail, and then go to the skate park for the rest of the day. <laughs> I was just doing that, like, when I was 15. <laughs> so, so it's just, just got used to that, I think. Yeah, and, and obviously you started in downhill, and then EWS came on the scene. Are you are you a bit torn, or what's like what's your passion? It sounds like EWS, if you love riding your bike all day. Yeah, it is, it is definitely, but I like, like, I think now from the video perspective, I like to be at the downhill race just because there's all that hype around the race. Whereas the EWS, like you don't, you don't just race one stage, so it's not like so exciting. Whereas the downhill is such a 
I think it's the pinnacle of the sport as far as uh, gravity anyway. Like, you want to watch a downhill race. You're not going to – I'm not going to tune in three o'clock in the morning when I'm in New Zealand to watch an enduro race. Like, it's just – Yeah, it's not It's not designed yeah. around that, is it? It's just the way the sport is. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty fair. I, I feel the same sentiments. It's interesting to hear that because you're a, a top-level EWS race and so enjoy doing them, but it's a, it's a challenging sport to kind of sell to the, I know, I guess we'll get to that later with the state of the sports stuff we'll speak about, but, you know, there are a lot of people that ride enduro bikes, but the core fans kind of tune into downhill. It's like, it is the pinnacle of how fast you can push a mountain bike. How fast can you go on one? Yeah. And that's, that like ragged edge of like some of the guys and their runs, it's just that much more exciting to see and then to speak to them afterwards like is pretty good like because you just watch what went down or and you and as a writer if i just done that run as well then i can speak from that perspective which i say i think with the win tv thing gives me like a little bit different perspective to the average interview like unless it's someone like yourself that's been there and done it before it's hard to really know what they did you know yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's it's been good tuning into those things, and um, even though you've got a win in EWS and successes, do you think multitasking or or focusing on these two disciplines can kind of hurt one or the other or or both a little bit? I mean, do you think about that at all? Um, I think with myself, it probably does a little bit because I'm trying to do videos as well at both and then like probably come in very prepared maybe at the start of the season and then slowly it gets worse but and and doing downhill races I don't think it's training for enduro like it's great for your speed but then um you don't get the fitness that you need if it's a very physical race like if you go to a downhill race I do 12 runs in a week and that's all the rest of the time you're trying to rest so you're fresh for the race mm so I think um, it's kind of can be detrimental, but then the speed you get from doing down a racing can be good because then you bring that aggression, but you need a mix of both for enduro anyway. Yeah, it's interesting because we've seen Blinky go and do both and then kind of step away from doing both. Eddie, your brother's doing pretty well at both. He's maybe mm. one of the few you as well. I mean, I think, yeah, you've got to, still prioritize one of them and then the other one will suffer a bit or you do less of the other one i think in a perfect world you know you could maybe do both but yeah to pull them at the highest level and anything that's like trying to do two sports there yes it's bike riding but they're they're pretty pretty different so um now wh like what's your view on social media so you're f known for your wheelie wednesdays um that that's blown up quite viral it seems like you you put a lot of effort to try like keep up with that do you feel like pressure having to do one every wednesday or um, whatever you release <laughs> now like what's what's like your viewpoint on social media it seems you've embraced it seeing that's that your sponsors value it as well yeah um i think it's good because just share what i do and can show every day something i can share something i try to post every day like it's just now become a routine and it's i think it's part of the job like you've got to roll with the changes mm. um as as things develop like and it's not 
actually that hard if you've got a photographer like like with my team i've got sven that works for the team you have a photographer like that that comes to all the races when you're racing and then when you're not racing there's quite a lot of time to do other stuff but producing a video every week can be difficult but it's no more difficult than uh working in the Cairns sun or um working in a mine site or building trails you know like i think it, a lot of guys get caught up on that it's i don't know that it's a problem to do this extra work but it should be something that you take like you enjoy because it's you're riding your bike for a living you know yeah it's an interesting like transition period the young guys obviously grow up with it and they're so used to doing it the older guys maybe didn't have to but like you said, that's interesting what you said. Like, I think you have to adapt and, and sponsors, unfortunately, expect it. Um, but I think it depends what your priority is. And there's a time and a place to do it. Someone like Luke, Bruni, Greg, they might outsource it. I'm not saying they do. But I, 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 th I think at the top level of sport, and if you're earning enough, outsource a bit of it and don't really touch it on a race week because you need all your energy. Like you said, yeah, it's good and it's bad, but it maybe detracts from some of my energy at the race. That's kind of what you're known for now, so you're able to do that. But if you're committed to you know winning races and getting podiums, then the social media, well, maybe let's call it distractions because it's not mm. a good social media post is not going to help you win a race. So then, no. why do that during a race weekend or whatever? So there's like a kind of a time but, and a place. But if you're winning all the races, then, yeah, you definitely should be outsourcing it to someone that you know that can do it for you, that, that will do it well as well. Like, the people just want to see a decent picture or video of you riding. And if you if you have someone that can do that, put that up for you every day, then it's still good. Yeah, it's like, fascinating. Hey, I guess me as a fan of, you know, other sports and a fan of, of mountain biking, but I know you guys well enough, so I don't really need to see, like, the behind the scenes. But someone that doesn't, the behind the scenes is, is, is something that people love seeing, but you know, you've got to have a mental adjustment to let people into your lives because it's double-edged sword, you know, then they expect more and mm. start judging you from the outside. Like it's a super interesting, and it comes up a lot on the podcast, social media, the pros and cons and in, it, in normal life as well as racing, there are pros and cons to it, aren't there? It definitely can have the negatives as well that people judge you for what you put out. But I, I mean, they judge they judge you anyway, but it's just, just the internet gives them a place to uh, write what they think, and you're gonna have people that hate, even if you have people that love what you're doing, you know. So it's it's all you can really take from it. Like, I think it's still good because those guys still watch my video and put a comment on. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> like, I mean, there could be a hundred good comments, and you're gonna read the negative comment, or at least it's gonna hurt more than the positive yeah, yeah, yeah. feeling you get from a yeah. hundred good ones. You're like, okay, cool. I'm doing something good. And then one guy decides you're not and gives you yeah, a shitty yeah. comment but after watching free content, which is the other ironic thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's well, look, with the YouTube stuff now as well, it kind of becomes like most people's TV. They just watch that all the time now. Mm. So that's even, even more, but, Sometimes I feel like that lets people in too much into your personal life as well. But it's it's everyone's got their own like balance and I've got teammate like Martin, he doesn't even put much out of there at all. So I think 
someone like him, he could benefit from someone helping him do it. And I would do something like that if I was finished racing. Then you could just do social media for some top riders mm. and help them out. But there is guys that need help on that side. And then there's the other guys that, like myself, I'm just doing it all the time. It probably takes away from the racing sometimes. But I see the value there as well. So it's like um, now going into like the later years of racing, I'm more probably focused on what I can put out content-wise than just my results because if I came at, at my best, like say I came 10th in the World Cup, but like, like my best downhill World Cup has been 11th, which is like um, as far as like someone like you, you had plenty of podiums. I haven't even had a podium, you know? So I think even that, if I got that 11th again this year, people would be like, yeah, cool. But the, I think the value would not be that high for that result. Yeah, I hear I hear what you're saying and and it's I guess you've you're making peace with it and seeing where you fit in or deciding where you fit in um and maybe for people listening you know you need to you do need to prioritize and pick and choose what you want to be known for and there's yep. nothing wrong with either one of those coins, you know. Like a Martin no, or, clearly or, is just so dedicated to his craft, like he's a racer at heart. He wants to beat the hmm. clock and Anything he sets his mind to, he's, he's so good. Yeah, he's a fascinating racer at heart. And social media, he's maybe not too fussed to grow it because maybe after racing, he might not be in the in the riding scene. He's not really sure, is he? Yeah. And I think as also his age as well, he's quite young. So put everything into racing at that point. Like I think even like my first years on, on the Bulls team, I was like, super selfish and probably like just with how focused I was on racing, that was all, all I thought about. And I probably wasn't as good of a person then, but I was a better racer. So it's like quite hard to uh, find that balance. And now I know that I can provide the value if I do the content and I still enjoy the racing. So I'm not going to stop racing, but I can't expect those results every week, you know, because you've got to be that focused if you really want just results, you know. Yeah, you've got to be incredibly, incredibly dedicated, I must say. When, what about, um, I've asked a few times, you're clearly too humble to speak about it, but I'd like to know how it felt to, to be able to step <laughs> on the top of that podium after you know, doing all the videos and getting a good name for yourself, getting now after Bulls, it was GT. Um, and obviously deep down, you, you started a racer and, and you want to do hopefully win some races. What was that like? Was it like a relief? Was it something you didn't even think you could achieve? What, what was it like when you won that EWS? Um, well, for some reason, I thought uh, that I probably could do it. But probably... I didn't think that it would happen that year, maybe. Um, I, the previous EWS in Rotorua was 2015, and I got third, and that was my first ever EWS race. And I like, I think I built up a bike, because I was riding for Bulls. They didn't have a good enduro bike, so I bought a Santa Cruz through Marshy and built that up just for that race. And then I got third to Fabian and um, Jerome won, I think. And then, so I knew from that that I could do pretty well there. And then the 2017 one was like just more muddy than the 2015 one and more gnarly. 
And I knew halfway through the race, I was like, there's one stage and I had to like run half of it sort of thing. Like you had to run the climbs cause it was so sticky. And I think my brother killed it on that one. Like he stayed on, he's pretty good when the conditions get extreme. So I, I knew that he was doing well and I think I was coming back through and then going into like probably the second last stage. I knew that I was leading from other guys with their phones and I was like, this is pretty crazy. Um, actually, on the last two stages, I wasn't even very fast because I think I knew that I was leading, so I was trying to ride safe. And then you're like, you're thinking more about that. But then, um, in the end, it was myself, um, Matt Walker, another Kiwi, and then my brother. And it was like the muddiest, gnarliest day, and probably the gnarliest conditions that I've ridden those Rotorua trails. And I've ridden definitely there a lot before, but you can't um, compare like riding there before to those riding in those conditions. So Yeah, I was going to say some people said, oh, you knew the tracks. And even I was like, okay, well, Wood knows the tracks. It is a bit of an advantage, but the conditions, like you said, were thrown on their head. So yeah. it doesn't matter if it's if you know it's a left or right turn coming up or what it what route there is. I mean, it's so muddy. It's, it's basically a gamble to get down. Yeah, you, there were bits that were definitely a gamble and you had to like, often I think with that, that race, like because I, you had to be aggressive rather than hold back. And it, it's often probably the same in the wet, but like when you um, hold back is when you make the mistakes because you're like, that's going to be slippery and then it is slippery. Yeah, yeah, Whereas you're, if right, you're aggressive, tentative, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've got to yeah, commit I, in the rain, yeah. Which is counterintuitive. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So it was pretty, like, that was a massive day. And I think um, just, like, came back. And it was, like, hard to believe because it was, like, took a while to get, like, everyone comes through and gets their results. So I think I came back in earlier because I was starting a little bit earlier. Um, and then I've got to wait for everyone to come. And they knew from like the last stage that I was ahead then, but I got to wait for Sam Hill to come back through. And I think he finished fourth at that race. Um, so it's like hard to believe at first. And I was like, wow, is it, is it actually true or, you know? Yeah. Awesome. And it was pretty amazing to go up on the podium and to do it also with my brother on the same podium, you know, it was like unreal. He was actually, um, battling me for most of the race like we were going backwards and forwards quite a bit so it was like quite cool that we were right there the whole time and then it was kind of like just ticking off like that that big goal and I think I even said like if, if that was it then that's already enough like I've achieved what I wanted to win like on the world stage and to do it at home was even better you know yeah that's a cool feeling eh? I think yeah just just like it's kind of like checking the the box that you wanted to always achieve you know and then probably i was it's like very hard after that because i would like mm. i'd won the first race of the season and that season didn't go as well after that because i think you set the bar too high and then you're like like looking back now i would have changed how i would approach the rest of the season what, what, what how did you approach it or you just let the expectations get too high 
yeah, well, I'd like, then I was like the last rider at the next race. And it's like, you like, do, do you really belong there? And then you're thinking all this stuff and it's like not even focused anymore. And then, um, it was still like solid, but it wasn't like, I think I just expected only to win and then nothing else is good. Mm, yeah it's a tough one once you get those big results you want to kind of back them up or prove to yourself and everyone else but you forget the process yeah it's a you mega mega challenging position and you're not the only one i think most riders do struggle with that once you've started unless you've started doing it for a while is winning once is easier than than winning it again you know and that's the difference between like um a great rider and the very best I think like they they are focused on each race as it comes and they can perform at every race like but that's I think it's it's not it's probably like you can't become that it's like there's a little bit that's inbuilt ingrained in in those champion riders you know like well, you think they're mentally born, you think they're a little bit born with it or or what I think yeah they they just they know or the, or they've done so much through their life, like start racing at three or four in BMX and they know how to like focus on the one race at a time and how to put a like if they have a mistake, they put that behind them really quickly. Where sometimes like at an EWS like you make a mistake in a stage. So you're like, Oh, push harder, which is like counterintuitive because then you make more mistakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're more tired. But I think guys, the top, the top, and the best of the best, like, can put that behind them quickly and focus on the job at hand rather than um, dwelling on what they mistakes they made. It sounds simple, but it's so complicated. Like, no, it always sounds easier, easier in principle, but in reality, it's so tough to be present. And that mistake is time's gone you can't it's it's not like you can erase it by going faster you know like you say you often bring in more issues when you try to go faster and in the wet okay it's wet i kind of need to be cautious to get down here but cautious leads to non-commitment is what i was referring to so you kind of got to be like smart but very committed you know it's kind of still going to be aggressive because otherwise yeah and and often your best races are the easiest ones like it feels like you're just cruising and it's all happening because you're in that headspace that your mind is clear and you can just focus on what you're doing. Yeah. That ever elusive zone that people speak about the zone or whatever it's coined at these days. Well, even like your best races must be, you must be able to remember like something was easy that day or like it just felt. Yeah. It all clicks in, clicks into place, doesn't it? Most of the time, but it's to recreate those processes to make the harder ones easier. Yeah. 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 It's like, how do you then take that good race and do it again the next week? That's like, that's, that's the difference between the, a great rider and then the best riders. Yeah. I think we've spoken about a bit on the podcast, but I, I personally think, um, you know, I, I was speaking to Rennie, we're going to release, this one would have been released, but, you know, sometimes you just know that, that you're feeling good or riding good on a track, right? Yeah. So that's like this confidence inside you. But other than that, I mean, you've got to, even he was talking about it, Greg, you've got to really get down to your processes and stick to the present and what you need to do. Like, 
not what people expect of you or what you expect to get out of this race. But yeah. okay, cool. Well, I need to go this fast in this section, this gear there, like, you know, like kind of simplify it down to your processes. And then you can ride to your potential way more often. I think the best riders in the world are sometimes better than some, like skill-wise, but not a lot. But they're mm. able to get closer to their potential of best way more often. Yeah. Yeah, and, and every race pretty much. Yeah. That that makes the difference. And then they might not even be better skill-wise. Like No, they just their mental even, was way better yeah. on that day or they were able to tick off their processes and, and, and not mess up, yeah. Yeah, and they're not clouded with other thoughts where you like might be like, oh, if I get this result, I'll get this or, you know, like sometimes you're thinking oh, way too ahead of yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you qualify well, but then you'll be like already thinking about what happens after if you do well. Yeah, I mean, and then the, the, <laughs> so yeah, the qualifying well part, that's a, t- a t- tough one because you know you're riding fast. So all you have to do is get yeah. down the hill and you'll get a good result. But that's not how you get down the hill fast. That's not how you qualify fast, you know. <laughs> you got to go back no. to your process. It's a whole new day. Okay, what yeah. do I do in the first turn? What do I do for my warm up, you know. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I've definitely messed that up. A few times yeah. as well, and, and it takes time Myself to put yourself too. in that position often enough to to realize what yeah. what to do. Definitely, I think that yeah, the first time I qualified well was um, in Champery, two thousand ten, in the mud, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, because it was not even a very good run in my mind. Mm. Like I was like, but I was like, all I was doing was. I kept on the bike and I kept it going. Like I had flat pedals, so I was like probably at an advantage for that those conditions that track. And then just like dabbing everywhere and riding like tripod all over the place. But that was actually I was staying keep the bike going rather than fall off or slide out. And then I came down to fifth. I was like I can't believe that. Then in the final, I'm like holy shit! I'm at the top of the hill with Greg Minar, Steve Pete. And I think Greg or Steve, I was like starting in between them. I was like, and then there was all these delays. And by the time we got to the race, I was cooked. Eh? Yeah, you. Was, it's pretty yeah. safe to say Pete or Greg weren't thinking, oh, I've qualified near win masters. They're, they're, yeah. they're <laughs> yeah. thinking about, no, I'm not downplaying you. I'm just saying they weren't thinking shit. They were thinking, you know, yeah, yeah. they were doing their pre-race process yeah, and, and, and whatever they do and for I was warm-up. Not, not used to that at all, like to have that quieter um, scene at the top of the yeah, hill. It's, it's like it's quite, eerie, huh? It's quite tense. It's tense, yeah. And for the first time, like I think a lot of riders would agree, like the first time they go to that, when you go that to that from like qualifying 40th or 30th or whatever, when there's a bunch of guys and it's still kind of, there's a bit of like atmosphere still. Yeah. Like, it's still noisy. There's stuff going on. To when there's like four guys left. It's, and it's so, so quiet. quiet. Everyone's in their zone. And it's like all, all you can hear is a trainer spinning and there's nothing else. But it's no surprise. And you go eh? to the start with the big gaps too. Yeah, yeah. And then you sit for three minutes. Normally it's yeah, like a minute is, or 30 seconds in yeah. qualifying. Yeah, it, three minutes feels like forever. It's no surprise though, doing something for the first time, i.e., qualifying at the top of the field i botched my first big qualification at norba qualified 
qualified fourth. This is still when you, the teams asked you, made you run skin suits. So I was in Vermont. <laughs> and I didn't think I had such a good run to qualify for. So I'm thinking if I just get yeah. down this hill, I'm on the podium. This is crazy. But Which is the worst. Like, then you sped up and you're like, like, because I think I qualified fifth. And I was like, shit, I could win this race. <laughs> yeah. And I was like. <laughs> yeah, but, there's a big no-no but, thinking ahead. But like the, the day before, I would have been like, I would have been stoked to get 20th. You know, like. So then I've gone suddenly from one result and I'm already gone way ahead of myself, you know? Yeah. No, dude, I, <laughs> um, I wadded so hard in front of, um, forget who, but I was sponsored by RockShock my first year over and, and um, they were walking <laughs> down the course. I came punting down in my skin suit, <laughs> huge over the bars in front of them yeah. and then got a flat. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, there's a different level of energy, different level of stress that, it's the first time you ever do it. There's there's some champions that are able to pull it off, but they're yeah, they're calm now. But, I mean, it's just another race for them. They're so used to it. But but they yeah they might have been doing that like since they're four or something. Mm. Like I think that can make the big difference. Like even like my brother's probably a great example. He's had he had plenty of great qualifiers until he finally started putting together final runs. Like he was great in the qualifying because I think he knew that it's not the final. So he didn't have that same pressure and then he'd do well in the qualifying. Then he'd be like, Oh shit, I've got to go. All yeah. In the but final it, it, it does something to your body that like that mental tense, it's actually tightens, physically tightens your body. I mean, I don't know if you yeah, felt you it, but you actually so ride, stiff. you ride differently to how you ride in practice or how you ride in qualifying. You're yeah. not loose. You're not that relaxed. Yeah. Like you, you have to figure out what works to like reset the physical side as well. Which is, I think that was probably, and downhill, that's my weakness. It's like normally, that's why I was good in, um, or better in enduro because a lot of the stages are longer. And once the race has started, like you've done the, you get that nerves for the first stage and then you're rolling, you're just in the race. Yeah. And you ride around with whoever you're with and you're talking all day and the day just rolls on. I honestly but think EWS in, is, is less pressure like that. I'm not taking anything away from the riders. No, no. Not at all. Everyone's gifted. Yeah. They're professional. They're as good as a downhiller, but it's like a different mindset. Yeah. You only have that pressure on the first stage. Yeah. But it's not the same pressure as a World Cup final run. And it, it the day just rolls on from there and you're almost in like you're out for a ride with your mates, really. Like if you're with a good group, the day can go by like that and it can be like six hours, you know? Like, yeah. And you don't feel like you're in a race. Whereas in the World Cup final run is so different. You're often like always struggled at like first splits because I think, it take me like that minute or two before I get into riding how I should. Mm. And like, I'd be like way back at the first split and I pull time back as I went down, but you know, that's never going to be the best way to race. But I was like, that was just my weakness. And I don't know. Well, I, I never even found how to fix that. You know? Well, I think, um, I think it does take a different mindset. I think there's a different kind of pressure and some guys that maybe don't, handle downhill as well say naturally and i think you can mm. work on it it seems like an yeah. interesting avenue to go down if you if you can't handle that one run pressure let alone the technical aspect and the skill wise i think um that's different but that pressure like you say it's a bit of pressure on the first stage but you know you've got like six or seven the whole day right so you could actually make yeah. a mistake so there's less pressure downhill if you yeah. if you let yourself think about it it's the most pressure you could put on yourself you've got one run 
Yeah. You've got to lay it all, all on, on the that. line. Everyone's yep. going hard, so you can't hold back. And if you won't make a mistake, you're also out. But I mean, that's getting ahead of yourself. I mean, and and there might only be seven races in the year, so you've got seven times to do that, and you've got to make that final every time. I think it's just uh, it's a pressure cooker the downhill racing compared to enduro. Yeah, I mean that's incredible. That's probably why we 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 love doing it, and as well as I mean you're you doing the videos and you like watching it from a fan yeah. base and I'm even more of one now. Yeah. I love it. Speaking of that, I mean, it's a no brainer. The guys need speaking of like, let's move on to say state of the sport. I mean, how much better would it be to have some more rounds? It's all these pressure on these riders to get a result yeah. or two, to keep their contracts. And then there's only seven opportunities and most other sports have more. And also most other sports have like, it's not there's less pressure to do it in a either two minute three minute four minute race run yeah um well i would love to see like it the like without the covid situation that we have now which makes all the travel a lot more complicated i'd like to see the world cup be become like truly a world cup and i think for our sport to grow we nearly really need to race more in America, so like probably on the West Coast as well as the East Coast, because we've only been we only do like Monsonan or um, Snowshoe, which are kind of kind of like middle of nowhere, really, both places. But Snowshoe still brings a good crowd, and Monsonan's been going for so long that it gets a crowd, but it's like they're just like, oh, it's that event again. It's not that that big hype of the once a year event anymore because it's been going for 20 odd years um so i think if we were racing in california the crowd would be insane like mm. everyone's going to show up and that's that's the home of the original home of the sport oh, and the home of a lot of the brands maybe not so much now but it was originally so there's so much people there that would show up and then you need to be there you need to be also in south america i think south america the sport is massive like um, a lot of my following is from South America. Yeah, like when you go to Chile, those street races, and obviously Brazil yeah. as well. That was like the, some of the biggest races I've ever done. Like that Valparaiso. Yeah, they they love that, it. It's on national TV, and I got like invited on to sports shows and all sorts, like just because of that race. Mm. Like, and I would meet people in the street, and they they wouldn't. Hang on, I. I lost you there when you were saying you'd meet people on the street. Yeah, I'd meet people on the street in Chile, and they would know that race. Yeah, because it's um, it's like a a national event almost. Like they would, oh, you did the VCA, and you'd be like, yeah, and they'd, they'd be like, whoa, crazy, and it's like a a national event for them. So it's pretty um awesome to do that, and like we need to take the sport to those people. Because that's that's that way it's going to grow, and I think it's massive in South America. The EWS, even that we did in Chile and then in Colombia, was huge. Like um, normally, an EWS doesn't attract a lot of fans, and that that um, Chile and Colombia, like the last stage in Chile, was stacked with people. The whole hillside, and then the urban stage in Colombia was insane. Like it was the same as one of those street races, but not as gnarly track, but still just so many people 
Yeah, let's. So I think. Yeah, I, I, we I, need to go to those places. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, we could South Africa. I mean, maybe some of the reason I went and raced as well as my brother is there was a World Cup in '97, '98 when we were youngsters. So it, it does help expose a sport to the next generation, definitely, if if possible. There's so much red tape, you know, the funding. Yeah, but I really, of course, I, but I can't. I. I th- but then don't call it the World Cup if it's not. <laughs> fair hey, enough, like, fair enough. But it's, also there's, it's not the World Cup. Where there's yeah. a will, there's a way. There's got to be a way to get at least 10 rounds. Like if you can do seven and, or eight, you can do 10. I'm not saying do yeah, 15, do ma- 20. That's expensive. But there must be a way. Yeah. They've proved they maybe, can do some sort of double header at one, at one or two of them. Yeah. Maybe not all the privateers would go to all of them. But still, if you have 10 rounds in, say, the points count from eight. You know, like yeah, yeah. I, I think have, I think you better drop you can, one or two would be good because I mean you get flat tires and there's all sorts of uncontrollables yeah. would be great. And and that would make the overall uh, points chase even more exciting because everyone would be more tight if they could drop their two worst races. Yeah, that's but, interesting, eh? Because like consistency is key, but sometimes now you're out of it because you got a flat tire. Like if there's. Yeah. 17 18 and rounds you can afford that but now we've only got seven you can't really afford to get a flat tire like like loris um Virgier last year if he didn't get that front flat what's to say he wouldn't have won that race and then won the next race like it destroyed him mentally having that flat tire because then he's like had to go back he wasn't ready for that i think mentally mm. um and then he had to go back and try and work out what to do the next day, which was really hard because we had only a four race season. But I think if he if we had more races and he could have dropped that race, he would have kept that form. No, no, I I definitely agree. And in a perfect world, some more races would be good and lots of them. But I mean, realistically, yes, you hope we could maybe get get up to you know ten events, maybe and maybe some double headers at one or two of the venues, and we're there already. Mm. Yeah, and we need to be uh, like two other um, or regions we should be as in Asia. Mm. So J- Japan. I know, it'd be so good. Japan, that race back in the day before yeah. we were on the circuit looked incredible, yeah. Yeah, unreal. And and maybe even like Thailand or somewhere like that. Just take the race to the people. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, that'd be great. And China. Like China, imagine that mountain biking takes off in China. That's going to be like global superpower china is like whether we like it or not they're one of the richest countries now and they're only growing Mm -hmm. so imagine mountain biking becomes a big thing there and you get you bring in like some chinese sponsors then suddenly the sport is like in a totally different place like then the salaries are way bigger and and if you're like a superstar rider in china then then you're going to be like you know, that'd be a massive deal, you know? Yeah. Well, speak, speaking of that, um, you know, some surveys have been going around on, on pink bike and we've been reading through it. What, what do you, what do you make of some of that survey surveys? And, and obviously they made a interesting look at the, the salaries and the wages. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had to read through, it doesn't tell us a lot, but, um, it, the, what you can gather from it is that the majority of the riders, or a lot of the writers don't get paid a livable wage, I don't think. And yeah. um, it's just not not really fair. Like, 
the thing I say to like any young guy that asks me like they're getting like their first pro deal, they they sometimes question this, but I'll be like, well, you've got to make more than the receptionist at the office. Like that receptionist has no risk. They're doing like quite what, like not to be rude to them. It's a it's a simple job, so they don't need like a like they're not qualified to do that. Um, and then the writers out there taking the risk for the brand as the face of the brand, they need to be paid more than that, so they at least can live, you know. I'm and a lot of these people dude, wouldn't amen be amen to. to that. My, yeah. I was it, it made me think, and and um. It's such a challenge because you get this contract and then you obviously you need the support. You can't fund it yourself. So you're kind of yeah. basically screwed. You've got to accept it. You can try push back, but you maybe haven't proven yourself enough. But my yeah. first contract, salary-based one. Well, let's rewind. So yeah, I was on help like you and you know got some top 10s at the World Cup, won a Norba on zero money. I, I had a little bit of money and got some bikes to keep, but they did me a solid, like I didn't have anything else, so I had to prove myself. But anyway, so we fast forward, so you get your first pro contract. And then if you do the numbers, you realize that, like you said, the receptionist is earning more than you. And this is no disrespect, the mechanic of the team and definitely the manager, because they're now getting a salary in America. So it's going to be more than minimum mm. wage because that's yep. their only job is way more than what you get. And like you said, you're risking life and limb. I mean, the mechanics work their ass off. They're the unsung heroes. They should get paid more. I mean, everyone should be a little yeah. bit. But it's but, not like the companies are not making profit, say, on a factory yes. team. And and it's tough. Like the third-party teams, there's only so much money yeah, they yeah. have that they get given from other sponsors to then pay people. So I don't know how to fix it, but for sure, maybe with it being spoken out about it more and... And the riders able to internally talk and say, well, this is what I got from my first contract. This is what I got when I was getting top 10s or top 20s. Okay, you've got a bit of a social media presence. Like, there's no way to quantify it. But how mm. you risking life and limb and then you get paid less than the staff. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it's pretty sad for some of those guys that they, because also because it's what you love, you're never going to think that you should earn a lot of money for it just because you enjoy doing it sometimes. Mm. So you get caught up in that trap a little bit sometimes. Like you're like, well, I love doing this anyway, so I'm going to do it anyway. Well, yeah, you were paying paying yeah. for yourself to race. So you'd, you'd race yeah, yeah. even if you had to pay for it. You'd race for free. Yeah. So you don't need to race for that much. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge like that. But, and, and the Aussies that you, came up, like Rennie and Kavorik, they didn't know. He's not even mm. saying I wanted a race for a free pair of shoes. He's like, I didn't know. No one told me. That's like yeah. the only offer that came through. Like, I'm going to go racing, you know? The good side is that at the top end, it's definitely increasing again. Mm. But that filters off really quickly. Like, so your top guy, he's on over 500,000 euros or whatever. But then your guy in 20th, he might not even get 10. Yeah, which is like that's a challenge, you know. Like if you can get in the top ten, maybe a podium. Like the top guys, yeah. it's great that the wage has increased. I think there was like a dip early two thousands, then it kind of came up, and you I could see the contracts with that when I was still racing. Now I'm hearing some of the contracts that guys are getting with similar results. I'm like, okay, that's definitely more. That's great. I'm only uh, it's yeah. only a positive thing. 
But like you say, so a guy is expected to train every day. It's a full-time job. And it's not his fault you only race eight times a year. And now, you know, you do your social media and you've got to be available and you've got to go testing. Um, and then you're not getting paid enough. You know, as a top 20 World Cup racer, you should you should be on like 50 yeah. grand or something, you know, at least. Yeah, you should not You should not have to live at home with mom and dad to make it work, you know. No, not, not <laughs> like, as a top 20 regular and then you can get yeah. into the top 10, you know, top 20 in the world. Look but, at F1 drivers. They have 12 on the grid or whatever the number is. I yeah. know we have a different sport, but yeah, it's tough. Well, there will I, be always a pay discrepancy, but like the lower end guys shouldn't get be paid as little. No, it hopefully it can keep increasing because definitely the industry has increased massively. Like with currently all the shortages, that means that every brand is sold out, which is something that's never happened before in the sport, which is pretty crazy. But um they can't be doing badly when they're sold out. No, definitely not. It's it's super interesting how they decide to spend their resources and then they allocate a certain budget to, say, a World Cup team. Then you've got to spread the World Cup team. And let's provide a bit more context for the listeners. So we're talking about a Pink Bike article. On They did a bunch of surveys. They sent it out. I'll butcher some of this. Check the facts on, on the website. But they got mostly top 40 ranked riders, you didn't have to do the survey. It was anonymous. Um, and they're telling up some of... And it's obviously not going to all be like factual data. Someone could lie. Not everyone did it. Uh, and from that, they got like kind of an average of of percentage of who gets paid, who gets paid what, and, and stuff like that. Um, but then at the end of the day, there's only so much money that's put into a race team. So then you've got to divide it up. So you can either divide and give more people a bit more, no, less people a bit more money, but then some guys are not going to even be able to get a free bike. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the brand that does that the best right now is Commentar. Like, they've got, everyone wants to be on their bike, or like a lot of the privateer guys and small teams, they all want to be on that bike because they see that that bike's been performing. So then they, they can get all these riders for like, <clears throat> very little and then they fund their main team and then they have maybe five secondary teams so like you can't see i'd be hard to see that any of those secondary team riders are really making much of a living but a lot of them are still there in the top 20 on most weekends you know yeah it's fascinating what else did you pick up from like going through the the findings and maybe what you know on the street and stuff like that um, well, just that the majority was paid too low, but then there were a few that were stand out for high. Like there was a couple of guys over 500,000, I think. And that's good to see for the sport. I mean, a couple of years ago when, uh, Gwyn came out and said that he earned a million in total in the season, I think that then stepped up all the pay for the other top guys. Cause then they're like, wow, I, d I didn't get enough. Mm -hmm. So they fight so, for some more. He did a really good thing by saying what he earned. And I think like a, a lot of the contracts, they are confidential. So you're not allowed to mention what you are paid, but that that's like quite hard at, for the sport to change when everything's confidential. Like the riders don't know what they earn. Then you come in as a young rider. You don't know. That's why I like always tell those young riders, they should earn more than the receptionist. <laughs> and it seems like a lot to them at the time, you know, like when you're, 
if you're 18 and you just had one good result, you think you think that that money's really a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, when you get on a little bit later, you can't really afford to set yourself up for life if you're even like to buy your own house or to do something for yourself. If you're on even that money, you know, like it's quite hard. Yeah, and then and the figure you're speaking yeah. about, some you know, like quite a high highish number and is under five thousand dollars a year. Yeah. So which it's is not money and which you sell is, a bike or yeah. two, but it doesn't pay for anything. I mean, people listening to this are gonna laugh. People can you can go and yeah. be a manager at McDonald's and earn way more. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with that. That's what you choose to do. But yeah. you know, you super interesting, eh? It's it it really is. But we the positive thing about the money is it's take home money. You know, if you're on a decent team you all your mm. flights your accommodation your food at the races there's actually not a lot of expenses in the year so you yep. might not be, become like filthy rich but you don't cost yourself a lot of money so you can take home a lot of money what's interesting is the slope style guys slope style mountain bike a lot of them seem to be getting a decent amount which is great everyone mm. should earn um, decently but what they didn't factor in is they don't always get the expenses paid for so yeah, their yeah. take-home money is a lot less. Um, they often have it to book their own accommodation, flights, all those expenses yeah. don't don't get covered. So it's always been a salary-based sport, but they were talking also that like, you know, domestic road riders kind of have like a set base, which is also like whatever mm. it is, say it's 40,000 euros. I think it's 44, yeah, yeah 44 which for is a, a world tour. Not enough for how much yeah. freaking work you do and how much it sucks to tow everyone round a Tour de France race, but <laughs> at least they've like but, helped set like a benchmark. Okay, you're on a factory but, tier or you, you're in this type of rank, you should get paid this, yeah. you know? But from what I can see with that, like if you're a good domestique, you don't stay on that money. Like, mm. So you that would be uh, Neo Pro, which is like your first year. And then um, – the next year, if you if you did well and you did a good job as like dragging the rest of the guys around to get a good result, then you would be on to a hundred thousand or so, and that's like a good domestique starts from a hundred up. Mm. So it's like, but but they have outside sponsorship, and for some reason, we don't have enough outside sponsorship yet. Like I would I would love to compare the viewership of road, but it's very hard to find all the information to compare it to mountain bike, but I think it's still too low for the, our, for the reach we have now. Yeah. For the reach and as well as inside the industry, the guys, guys are doing, doing pretty well. It'd be nice to, I think in short, see definitely the lower tier guys. If you're consistently getting results, you know, if you're just calling yourself a pro and going to the venue, but maybe not qualifying all the time, that's, that's tough to warrant a salary, but people that are doing it committed, with results, yeah, definitely. Or, or more. If, if they do put together enough content or whatever to justify the value, then they deserve to have a livable wage. Yeah, and it's yeah, yeah, definitely. Another thing I picked up, I was just filling around through some of the articles and stuff, is a lot of the writers said there's not enough. I don't know what those education protection for concussions, or are they worried about concussions mm. lasting effect? We've had a bunch of talks about it. We've probably been yep. through our own concussions. Um, yeah, I wish there was a way to invest in maybe a doctor or some sort of concussion protocol. But am I hearing there is a little bit more of that now? 
I think there's a bit more in the um, EWS was trying to do more as well. Um, but I don't know, as far as I could see, like from being behind the scenes with Brooks accident and everything like that wasn't concussion related, but it's still injury related. That was like pretty poor from the UCI side, how they were managing things and just trying to cover up all the, um, shortcomings to look like they were doing well, you know, like the meeting they had with the doctor afterwards was like pretty poor how they addressed it and they just they just assumed that that was good enough and that that's fine and that they that had no accidents at that venue before so that's okay um it's like well you just got lucky that's all and if 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 it had been any worse which is lucky it wasn't and now that brooke is okay and back racing it's pretty lucky really and a testament to his strength as well but um I feel they fall short quite a bit on that side and that maybe some of the, I don't know, funding the teams because the teams all pay a fee. So maybe some more of that should cover some of this medical costs and to bring in some experts in those fields, because how do you know that like as a writer, you don't know that you have a bad concussion. It's going to be really hard to find someone that will, but there needs to be a few more baseline tests and that sort of thing to make sure that, riders are not having the big crash and then racing the next day and risking that second impact yeah i mean there's uh there are baseline tests that exist um it obviously takes more work and more funding but it's it's such a serious thing and there's more knowledge mm. coming out about it so let's hope that someone can listen to well, it and someone can work on it but you could definitely do some baseline testing or force some of that yeah, yeah pre-season baseline like at, at the first race if everyone had to do a baseline test and then you have to meet those baselines again. Like if you look at any professional rugby game, as soon as they see uh, a big impact, head impact, they get taken off for an assessment. Mm, definitely. And then they come back on if they're, if they're okay. But if they're not, then they're off. And that's that's fair. It's how it should be. Yeah, motocross as well. You know, you're forced to sit yep. out uh, two weeks or two races or whatever their protocol is. It'd be good to see some, some protocol. And, and it is more work, more money. Riders might not always like it, but in the long run, it's for everyone's safety. That's um, Sven mentioned that you struggled with your concussions at, at one point, and that could have been part of the reason why you stopped or well racing. Uh, I mean, it might have added to some of my contract negotiation stuff, but I had um, a concussion at Whistler, like pretty heavy one, mm. but nothing bigger than what a lot of us have gone through. But because I educated myself. I knew it was serious, serious, um, um, and I fully recovered. And what I did is um, consult with a doctor in England because I was over there. And then I decided to sit out the last World Cup of the season. I was having a really good season um, anyway. Well, I was already. Yep. So it was very tough because I knew I was in a contract year. So I could yep. have raced, but I just kind of felt like some still mild kind yeah, of yeah. um what's his name what's what's the word i'm looking for uh, symptoms. symptoms yeah there we go yeah. so you like you like remember. feel sharp but you're not so funny that can't really remember what yeah. i couldn't remember then so um yeah i had some symptoms <laughs> so i sat out of maryball was the last race yeah and i just rather wanted to be safe like and and the team supported me don't get me wrong i said look i'd like i need to sit out 
And then I raced world champs because I was desperate to get back and, and you feel this pressure. And if there was a rule, at least we could factually say, well, like I didn't pass the test, so I have to sit out. But I had to make that decision myself in a contract yeah. year. And Worlds didn't quite go that well. I felt okay, symptoms are fine. But I actually flew home and then did some more research, did some more baseline tests and went and saw Kyra, that's also a bit of a guru with concussions. And he he did a few tweaks and my vision wasn't quite 100%, something else. And, and he showed me like, he did some tests and he said, you definitely weren't hundred percent. You're not hundred percent now. Mm. So that was scary at the time. Um, yep. So maybe that affected my renewal. I didn't quite get enough results. So no, I didn't retire because of that, because I felt that if you give the proper rest and you recover, yeah. I'm okay with people getting concussions and going back to sport. But like you alluded to, if you have a concussion and you force yourself to ride and you hit your head again when, you, when you're when you not recovered, you can risk permanent damage. Yeah, and, I've, and that's a scary I've thing. gone through something similar pretty much where it was my first race for GT and um, I think in Lords and it was wet, I think. It was slightly damp, so it was pretty gnarly track. Um, it's super gnarly in the wet. And then I like last practice run before qualifying or before, I think before the final, I like crashed and I hit my head like, but it didn't, wasn't like a big impact. It was just the way I felt that it, it like jarred me on the side. And then when I went to get up, I didn't have like proper balance. Mm. So, um, I was like, oh, well, I like, for a moment I couldn't quite stand properly and I think some spectators seen that but I was like all right I'll be I'm good now and then went down I didn't feel like 100% but I seen um Martin the masseuse I think dude yeah yeah you would have worked worked with him definitely yeah. so he was like a, a legendary kind of physio slash massage guy from from the world cup circuit that treated a lot of riders um and he was like did a few tests with my eyes. I was a bit slow. Um, gave me some, I think, oil just to clear my sinus and probably clear, feels like it clears your brain, but it's not really. <laughs> and then did the final and I was like slow, like, of course. But uh, after that, then went to the party, which is, again, <laughs> this is like what not to do for <laughs> yes. anyone listening. yes. Went to the party. We went out until like four, three o'clock in the morning. Drove back. We got back to the house, like the whole team. Um, and then I had to, we had to fly at like 4.30 or get to the airport at 4.30. So didn't really sleep. Flew to America. And then I was in America and I was like, we picked up the rental car and I was driving. And um, I couldn't even focus. Like I literally had to pull over and let someone else drive because I couldn't really, it was too much going on. Mm. And that, and then that dragged on for like a month like that. Um, I went to Cairns after that. So all this travel doesn't help either. Like it's probably the worst thing I could have done. Like, the whole sequence of <laughs> yeah, hitting my head. Definitely the, doing the race. The absolute no-nos after hitting your head at a down race. Yeah doing the race and then drinking and then flying and then flying all around the world. And then I went to Cairns. I tried to ride there. I was still like 
did a couple of practice runs, but I was getting like headaches. So I just said, no, I won't race. Like I knew then that I'm better to not race, but it was like really hard to make those decisions. And I probably like looking back now, I wouldn't have raced the first one. And then I might've been probably fine. Yeah. I mean, it's an invisible injury. So it's so easy if you wreck your shoulder, well, you know, I can either ride or I can't, and I probably won't do more damage. And if you crash on it, Yes, you do damage to your shoulder, but it, it's it, you, you can, can see recover. It, yeah. You can see it, can physically yeah. fix it. Um, yeah, and and here we have an invisible injury with the brain, and it's like anything. It gets bruised. It takes damage. It can repair itself, or it can. Let's say you can get back to your baseline. You can have no yeah. symptoms and stuff like that. I mean, I guess some of and don't quote me on this. Some of the signs is you might might be more susceptible to a concussion in the future. You know, like, look at Travis Pastrana. He literally, you look at him, taps his head on the ground, he has a concussion. But it's like those ongoing hits. It gets worse. Yeah, it gets worse. Yeah. But if you do the baseline and you protect yourself, but what you spoke to, that's such a tough thing as a pro athlete when there's no rules in place. Now it's on you. So you could hide that you had a concussion, guard and race because you don't want to lose your contract. And, And it's... I guess I just well, want everyone if, out there to realize like it's not worth it. It's really not worth it and for the future to, to put yourself through that. Especially as a young professional, because you're like, everything weighs on that. Mm. Like that's, that's your be all and end all. But when you look now, like I've been racing since 2008. When I look back now, I'm like, there's a lot more after that, you know? Yeah, and but you can't time, tell a kid you don't at the think, time. No, yeah. not at all. Not when you're young. You've got to go through these lessons, eh? Yeah, but it, it was... After that, I'm a lot more careful, and I did a lot more research and stuff, and I've seen that um, Travis Pastrana went to this special clinic with all of the Nitro cir- Circus guys. Yeah, to check for to CTE. Do, yeah. Yeah, they tested their brains, and actually they were okay. It's fucking miracle. Which is, like, pretty... <laughs> positive like for considering how much injury he would have had to his brain um that that all of his nitro circus guys were okay and i think the best thing is to keep moving and keep exercising throughout your life like that keeps you healthy and then i think you struggle when you don't and even mentally as well like i don't know the cte takes it it would wouldn't choose who it takes but different people were more susceptible to that as well but luckily in our sport the impacts are few and far between like it'll be one big impact mm. to the head yeah not not like a rugby player where it's every single game or fo- nfl or something like yeah that, or a few in a game hit, yeah. Hit, hit. and that's yeah. the danger heaps of small ones we've got like one big one and then you'd recover and, and you'd get in like luckily or hopefully not another one for a long time you know yeah no, it's, it's, it's interesting, and I'm happy we're talking about it, you know, because the more people that maybe hear this go, okay, cool, well, where do I get a baseline test? Well, rugby, NFL, yeah. those sort of teams, if you know of a local team. That's how I found my guy. He was um, our big rugby team here locally, um, our provincial yeah. one. I, I, I hit him up. I went through the sports science. I found a guy, and he has a baseline test. So I could do one and then I could do one online while I was away just to get an idea. And I sought out a few experts. It's nice to get peace of mind. Find a few doctors that can give you peace of mind and say, well, this is the, what are symptoms do you have? This is the return to play policy. And at any time, if the symptoms come back, you got to like take a week back and, and, and really Mm. just, you know, try to protect yourself that way. 
I've I've found for like myself anyway, for anyone listening, that the best things for the recovery period when when I was feeling shit and my vision wasn't quite right or everything was too bright um, were um, cranial osteopath. Okay. So they're doing like osteopath on on your skull kind oh, of. Really? It's it's like pretty relaxing. Sounds great. It's like kind of kind of nice. And it's pretty chill. Like I went to this nice place in Munich to do it, like a pretty specialized osteo. And they could feel, well, they're telling you they can feel what what you've done and they find the issues. That's amazing. And I, did I, that. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. Yeah. I did that alongside chiropractic. So then they adjust you as well. Yeah, the and chiropractic those, and adjustment really yeah. helps. I had that, that as well yeah. and, and a little like a certain – you know, they can really like leave stuff in your neck and all that. Okay, yeah. interesting. Often a lot of it's through your neck, yeah. Mm. So I found those things, those two together are the best to recover. Like often, um, again, like I went back to that again when I had like a small head knock. Like I didn't even feel that bad, but it was in Whistler. And I just um, got straight on to an osteopath in Whistler and I felt way better afterwards. Yeah, that's awesome. So like, I think those two things for me help the most, but um, everyone's different, but it's worth a try anyway. And hopefully it, it can help and hopefully you don't hit your head very often. And, and at least if you do it, our helmets are getting better, especially with all the MIPS and stuff. Like the old helmets were pretty sketchy in comparison to what we have now. And hopefully that keeps improving. Oh yeah. No, that's, that's great advice. And I think leads me to another one because I've heard you quoted maybe some, uh, Help to the listeners, you know, for Wheelie Wednesday. So two things. <laughs> what uh, what's like a, what what would you suggest to give someone advice on on how to maybe learn to wheelie and, and get to that balance point? Uh, I heard you speak about trying on an uphill. I, I tell people that yep. as well. Yeah, a nice smooth um, road uphill is normally the easiest to start off, and then just like a reasonably easy gear for depending on how steep the climb is. And just slowly work on bringing the front up and gradually build it up more and more. And then you'll find, as long as you've got a finger on the brake as well, to make sure you don't go off the back. But if you probably best to start with flats, in case then you can get used to actually flipping the bike and you find really truly where the balance point is. Yeah, you've got to um, like fail before you know where the good one is. So that's that's key. Yeah. And and who knows if you guys are out there and you haven't tried wheeling much, go watch Wynn's videos and that's key. Uh, a finger on the back brake because as soon as you pull yep. the back brake while you're wheeling, it throws the nose down and then uh, yep. it's pretty trial and error. I mean, w- w- I mean, you've just been doing them for years and just love doing them. Yeah, but I think it's like, generally it's like the first um, skill thing that you learn on a mountain bike, like should be. And a lot of people like kind of miss it out now but i think it's kind of key to finding your balance on the bike and getting more comfortable then with everything else and it just builds from there and it can translate to what you do on the trail as well and then you just learn more and more so i think it's it's a good skill to start out with especially early on yeah and another skill you've spoken about comes up a lot uh maybe trying flat pedals not being yep. afraid of riding a hardtail, pump tracks, like they're kind yep. of like baseline skill development you're quite a proponent of. Yeah, I think like 
definitely if you're younger or if you're just starting, it's really good to start on a hardtail because then you actually have to um, pick your line and ride smooth and, and break in the right place. Otherwise, you're going to get out of control or crash. So it really teaches you how to ride properly. And um, I think that's the key. And then, then just riding all sorts of different uh, things, so pump tracks, jumps, whatever. Like myself and my brother, Ed, we just had jumps in our backyard and slowly they got bigger over the years and that's that's like how we got good at riding. We didn't even do downhill like pretty rarely those first few years. Yeah. Like we're doing little little races down someone's farm, you know, like it's not not real downhill. We're just getting better at doing jumps and improving the base skills. And I think that's like that helped us all the way through. No, I think that's that's great advice. And I tell some of the youngsters, it doesn't really matter what bike you have. Maybe don't compare to other guys, but you can learn skill. But speaking of Eddie and Brooke, I've uh, lent on them for a few questions. Maybe we lighten the mood a little bit. <laughs> speaking, Sounds dangerous. Yeah, well, not too dangerous. Depends what you answer. But they've asked <laughs> to ask you, who's the greatest of all time at Laniels? Obviously, they may be teasing that <laughs> someone else has this prize. I don't know. Greatest of all time at Laniels. So Laniels would be oh, if you land a jump in a manual or a wheelie. Yeah. That's just the, the yeah. term. Yeah, and the, the the term was coined just out of this random guy on Instagram. Like, I was, I've been doing the videos for ages, and then I started doing the jump to, to manual. And I was, like, putting jump to manual, and the guy's like, this is a Laniel, isn't it? <laughs> and you're like, and then, well, now it is. So I just started calling it a Laniel, and now – a lot of people calling it this so like it, it took off kind of just from this random guy's comment but um i'd say nico vink is the uh, greatest rider at lanyos but fair point i'd love fair to see point. i have seen him do a ridiculous one at dark yeah. fest into the yeah. step and he does yeah he does them everywhere like he's he's probably and he does them on bmx as well which is like um probably harder because the balance point's so tight um i think He's probably the greatest ever, but uh, from from the mountain bike scene anyway. But I'd love to see more videos of Nico anyway, if he's listening. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, did you ever drive from the middle of the North Island to the middle of the South Island? I assume that's in New Zealand in third gear yeah. only. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I bought I bought this van, um, old van, and um, me. I was going down south with my friend one friend Mikey and Brooke as well for the national series. So I just bought this van to do the races. So I was like, Oh, it should be good. We're driving to pick up Brooke to meet him. And, um, it just locked into third gear and it wouldn't get any other gear. So then we just had everywhere they had to, um, jump out and push to get it rolling. <laughs> so we drove all the way. What from, to get it up to like, speed after you filled in like for fuel. Yeah, or so food. I could let, so, yeah, so I could like drop the clutch and go <laughs> and then pick up speed and then I'll just be third gear maxed out like probably 80 kilometers or 70 oh, kilometers man. an hour. And we drove like, it would have been four hours, eight hours, probably probably a good, yeah, nine hour drive. But we stopped overnight. So we're going to my friend's place and, and he lived in this town to stay the night and um, we're driving through the town like full speed because we can only do for fourth gear and there's speed bumps. And um, we hit the speed bumps really fast, 
and Brooke and my other friend's bike fell off the back. <laughs> um, but we didn't know because it was middle of the night and we didn't hear it. No. And we're like, yeah, so the bikes just flow off the back because they're on this bike rack, like shitty bike rack, and we hit it fast, like the speed bump, boom. And the bikes fell off like Saturday night in that town. And then someone would have just come out of a bar and just like saw these <laughs> downhill bikes on the road and they just rode off. So they, we went back like 10, 15 minutes later and they're gone. When you realized, finally realized. Yeah. Like, cause we arrived at his house, come oh, no. <laughs> around to the back of the van and <gasps> there's no bikes on it. <laughs> and, and then, then, um, we're like, oh, what? <laughs> like, so we went back into the town and the bikes were gone and, um, Brooke claimed insurance. So he was able, like, I was luckily able to get like a replacement pretty quick, but, um, it was still like a disaster. <laughs> like, it was the worst case scenario. And then the bikes, um, they were spotted someone riding them. I think like, three months later or something like uh just riding it through the town a kid that wouldn't <laughs> no be riding a downer bike you know but that was they never got them back on anything and then they both got insurance for them so it was worked out okay but it was still like a disaster oh my goodness but we still had so you we still had another four four hour drive the next day in third with gear. no bikes i once lost a bike mm. off the back of my my truck bucky but it was like yeah. tied in with moto tie downs and I went up onto oh, yeah. like out of the neighborhood and then I went down past my old school and I hit like a speed bump. And then only after I hit the speed yeah. bump did I look back and I was like, oh, the bike's gone. It was dra- Literally, dragging. my like factory downhill bike in the off season from Giant oh, wow. or someone at the time. And I was yeah. like, it's gone. Oh shit. So then I whipped around and then I went back to the speed bump. I was like, it's not there. That's weird. Like, where's this thing? So then I went back up the road and where I turned right into this road, luckily it had kind of fallen off there and then someone had come out their house but it's south africa right so you got them nicked in new zealand i mean i'm thinking if this bike's not on the road it's been stolen already and luckily someone came out their house and like saw it and got it on their verge so yeah i didn't i didn't lose (laughs) it or have to phone a sponsor and make up make up a story where my (laughs) bike went that's funny but I, i imagine um the guy that was coming out of the bar at 3 a.m or whatever (laughs) <laughs> was probably like couldn't believe his eyes when he found a downer bike on the road yeah he's like oh well it was meant to be i can ride home now i'll, I'll ride it home yeah <laughs> imagine he's pissed just trying to ride this downer bike home yeah and the downer bike's the worst bike to ride around on yeah you almost rather walk in the flat <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah when you yeah that was that's funny you've been so good with your was... time it's been uh um super fun to catch up we'll have to maybe uh hit you up to talk some bench racing uh, once the season goes. But think of that before I let you get back to doing a 100K road ride or a huge enduro ride. Uh, give me a, just a quick overview. Who do you think we're going to look out for in the downhill World Cup season kicking off here in June? I'd say going off current form, my favorite uh, right now is Loris Virgin. Yeah, okay. He's on fire. And um, the new bike, everything, he's putting in like a lot of work. And I think um, the other guys definitely can see that and they're feeling the pressure a bit. So 
Like what, um, when you Morris hang out is, with Bernard and stuff like that, are the other guys kind of talking about it or is it coming up in conversation? Yeah, a little, little bit more and like um, just just you can see that um, some of the other top writers are, are, can see how good he's writing right now. Mm. And I think if he holds that form and keeps building like he is, he'll be hard to beat this year. Yeah, and what's interesting is like the season ended so late last year in October, right? So yep. there wasn't much break. So two things like, have you refreshed yourself enough? But also like, is it maybe easier? I guess now the season's moved to June. So maybe it's about the same time. Yep. But I was thinking it's such a late season. You can hopefully carry that yeah. form. But he was the guy on form. But Matt Walker won the series. Greg Minow won a race. But Loris Vergier yep. was the more dominant. Plus Loic won a race as well. So yeah. I think, I think Loic... Uh, will take a couple of races to get going and then it'll be really strong later in the season. Mm. But Loris is on fire right now and he's been going everywhere training. Like they're doing so much testing. He's putting in a lot of work. Yeah. And like pre-season and, races and as well, if he can. Yeah. yeah. Cause he's got a new bike. So he's like motivated to ride yeah. his downhill bike. And he's racing as much as possible, which then you saw last season when it started that the, the guys that hadn't been racing much were way off the bat mm. just because, there's no better training than racing, like yeah. If you if even you if can it's small yeah, race. if you can stay motivated and not get burnt out, like of course it's going to help. You know, you get that race speed, that feel. You know, and I think some of the veterans are able to because of the experience. Like a Greg, I think yeah. the reason he's going so long is because he finds balance. He switches off. He might be a bit, maybe a bit slower than he would at the end of the year in the beginning, but he's yeah. still in the in the scene because he's not burning himself but, out and trying to race, trying to test. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the experienced guys can maybe get away with it a bit. But what you think we're going to see Aaron Gwynn back? I have, a, I have a sneaky feeling like he's probably pissed off at everyone asking this question and, yeah. and all us going, yeah, I think he can be back or, you know, why is he not there? Like, surely he's not going to be satisfied with some of the seasons no. he's had. I think... Um... I think we'll see him on the podium, maybe regularly, but I don't know if he would win. But this is just from looking at what he's been doing. But uh, he's got to be pretty fired up, so he could come out and win the first race. Who knows? Like it's pretty hard to say with with Aaron. Yeah. Um. But I'd say it'd be hard right now to beat Loris, and also it does look like Greg has been putting in a lot of work in Europe. Like he's been in Europe more than normal to get ready for the racing, so I'd say Greg will be strong again as well, which is pretty insane considering his age. Yeah, I mean, I was actually just up to do a project with him, and and fitness was fitness was crazy. The usual, he seems motivated. He's gonna put more time on his downhill bike now that he's kind of more based in Andorra. So I mean, he's not he's only got so much he can do there. He's gonna get bored and go ride his bike, even when he's not training yeah. a bit. So. Yeah, getting that European time on those downhill tracks will definitely help. And maybe before we let you go, like a dark horse. Mm. Dark horse. Well, oh, at the moment, um, I've been riding a lot with Bernard, and he's he's often the most outwardly confident person anyway. Mm. But um, he 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 keeps telling me that this is his last season, but we'll we'll wait until he. Um, Till he actually, he he said, if he wins a race, then it's his last season. What? Like and, uh, then he just wants to be a team manager, not race, or what? 
yeah, he wants to do videos, I think. So he thinks he's super confident and outwardly thinks he could win in Leo Gang. So it's also been a good race for him in the past. But if he can put everything together on the day, then I think he's a dark horse for that race. That's interesting. Just yeah, because... I will see that he's been building in speed and he had those injuries. And yeah, he does kind of have yeah. self-belief, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you can have that much self belief to be able to voice it to everyone, but um, it def- definitely works in his favor. And if you can do that, then <laughs> you may as well do what works for you. You know. Awesome, bud. Well, I think thanks for your time. We could sit for hours. I think in bench race. I know you're racing <laughs> yeah. at racing at these things, but you've got a a good eye for it. So I think we'll definitely sneak you back on and and talk some uh, some race behind the scenes and, and what happened in the future. But good luck with your training. Let's, uh, listeners, don't forget to follow along. Winmaster, what's the easiest? Probably your Instagram for them to follow? Yeah, Instagram would be easiest. It's at, at Winmasters, W-Y-N. Awesome, mate. Not two ends. <laughs> Not two ends. Well, yep. yeah, thanks again, and uh, good luck to for your season, EWS and Downhill and all the content you produce. And, again, we didn't speak too much about it but follow along he's always trying to raise funds for the privateers or do these cool things so i'll have him hit me up as well with what he's doing and i'll share it as well because i like to see the next generation get some help so thanks again yeah thanks very much for having me and um look forward to listening to some more of your shows it's been really good cheers mate i appreciate that thank you and one last thing before you guys go if you enjoyed the episode please share it with a friend make sure you subscribe Leave us hopefully a five-star rating and review. I read all those reviews. It's awesome getting them. If you've got any feedback, you want to send me a message, I get all those messages. I try to respond to them all. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun journey so far. So until the next one, stay well.